All right, so this is class number six in our One Another series. And as we do with every class, if you have not listened to the ones that have been taught so far, they are on Sermon Audio, and I highly encourage you to listen to them because we are building, each class is building on the next. And today we're looking at teaching and admonishing one another. The main text that we'll use is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. You can turn there as I do the introduction. But before we start, I just want to make two quick observations. We are on the tail end of the series. There are two more classes to go. And this series has been very heavy on commands. It's been a lot of do this and do that. And as Christians, though, we have been given God's divine power and all that pertains to life and godliness. So meaning we have the Holy Spirit of God, which enables us to do the things that we are going to talk about. And obviously, if anybody is listening to this or serving audio or here who does not know the Lord, these commands will be impossible. And for this reason, we call on those who don't know Christ to repent and believe on him because he is the only way to God and the only means by which we can do these things that we are going to talk about tonight. The second observation I want to make is that obedience to God's word brings joy. It brings fullness of joy, as the psalmist says, in, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. So as we talk about these things, there's always a temptation to label things as legalism. Um, we live in a society where a lot of times people don't like to be told what to do. But as we talk about these commands that are from God's word, I want us to look at them as what they are which is these are the means by which we can increase our joy in the Lord, by which we can increase our satisfaction in God, because ultimately our obedience to Him is what brings us joy in this life. When I first became a Christian, it often bothered me when I would meet other believers who had had been in the faith for 30 or 40 years, but they were struggling with the same sins that I was struggling with as a new believer. These Christians seem stuck in a spiritual infancy. They could not give me advice about how to overcome my sins, but they were very good at bemoaning their own struggles and wallowing in what seemed to be an endless pattern of slavery to sin. But then I would meet other believers who were mature. They knew God's word. They were living out God's word, and they showed me what was possible if I persevered in the faith. I still remember one of the first conversations I had with a brother, Edward of Life, many years ago. He was telling me how David, the story of David and Goliath, how David was a type of Christ. I had been a believer for about three years at that point, and it was the first time I heard this concept that Old Testament characters, that some of them are pointing us to Christ, and that we can see Christ in the Old Testament. And you know what that did for me? It caused me to go home and read my Bible. It caused me to be more serious about my faith because I wanted to be like this brother who had a genuine love for God. I'm not a betting person, but if I were to take stock of what differentiates a Christian who is in the faith for 40 years, but they're still living like a baby Christian, and one who matures in the faith, we would find that the difference between the two is that the one who fails to mature is one who often fights against teaching and admonishment. 
The one who fails to mature is one who does not like being told what to do, who does not like being told that their life is not pleasing to the Lord, and they think that they know what's right, they think that they know everything, and they don't listen to counsel from others. And this is, I believe, one of the great things that keeps a Christian from maturing in the faith. Two weeks ago, when we talked about bearing one another's burden, I said that the theme for that class was imitation. And I believe that this is a, a good theme for this class as well. In the last class, we talked about imitating Christ. But what I want to add today is to challenge us that we would be or seek to be Christians that others can imitate. In the business world, they talk about mission statements, right? Every company has a mission statement. My desire for us, brethren, is that our mission statement for ourselves would be that we would purpose in our minds to follow God in such a way that we can say to new believers, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we submit ourselves to teaching and admonishing one another, that we will be able to grow and mature more and more. And some of us are already doing that. Some of you are those that others can look at and follow because you set a good example for them. And so that's what I desire for us. And so our main point for this class is that our spiritual growth, both as individuals and corporately as a church, is carried out through interaction with other believers. It's carried out as we teach as we admonish one another, that is the way by which we mature in the faith. So with that, we're going to turn now to Colossians 3, and we'll read verse 16. Before we do, let me just set the background. In the book of Colossians, Paul and Timothy are writing to the Christians in Colossae. They first commend them for their faith in Christ and for the love that they have for the brethren. Paul expresses in the letter that his desire for the Colossians is that they would grow in the knowledge of God and would walk in wisdom, being fruitful in every good work. And after reminding them of the supremacy of Christ and their position in him, Paul goes on to admonish the believers to first set their minds on things above, not on things of the earth. And right before he starts to provide practical ways to do this, he then reminds them that they have put off the old man with his sinful deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed and being renewed in the knowledge of Christ. And then this leads us right into verse 16 of chapter 3, which reads, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As we dissect this verse, I just want to make two quick observations. First, we see that there are three commands in this passage. There's, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's, teach one another. And there is, admonish one another. Undergirding these commands, though, we see this phrase, in all wisdom. So the first command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, indicates to us that we cannot teach what we don't have. If we don't have the word of Christ in us, 
if we are living in a manner that is not conducive or that is not in line with the word of God, it makes it almost impossible for us to then teach somebody else because we have to set the example of what we are teaching. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5 verse 12, when he, called, when he tells the believers there, you ought to be teachers by now, but yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, but not solid food. So we see here in the first command, we call to let God's word dwell in us because that is the way that we grow in wisdom that we can then now teach and admonish one another with. And um, as I was preparing for this class, I, I listened to a sermon by, by John Piper by the same title. And he points out, and I'm going to use the same sort of example that he gave when you look at the first major example of God giving wisdom to somebody in the Bible. And of course, that person was Solomon. After Solomon became king, God came to him and said, hey, what do you want me to give you? And Solomon did not ask for riches. He did not ask for a long life. What he asked for was, God, give me wisdom that I can lead this people because who can lead this people? It's impossible for a man to lead this people. So he called on God to give him wisdom. And God was pleased with that. And God made Solomon the wisest man to ever live on the face of the earth. Immediately after that, we see the wisdom that God had given Solomon on display. When two prostitutes get pregnant, one of them at the time, they didn't have, you know, blow bassinets, so they had to sleep with the baby in the bed with them. One of them smothers the baby, the baby dies swaps it with the live one, and now they bring these two women to Solomon and said, all right, here's your first case, solve this problem. And Solomon is probably like, okay, there's no video camera, there's no witnesses, we don't have a paternity test to give these women to find out who, who, who the, uh, the parent is. But we see the wisdom that God had given Solomon, and he says, bring me a sword. And they're looking at him like, okay, what are you going to do with the sword? They bring him a sword. He says, cut the live child in two. Give one half to this woman and give one half to that woman. And then one woman said, do not kill the child. Give the child to her. And Solomon says, the one who had compassion on the child, that is the child's mother. And I use this example to show us what is possible when we rely on God to give us wisdom, that he will give us wisdom, and the wisdom that he gives us will be amazing to deal with whatever situation that we need to deal with. So how do we get this wisdom? Three ways. Number one, learning God's way. And by the way, this is in the outline here. Learning God's ways is the first way that we gain this wisdom. As we see in Psalm 25, verse 4, the psalmist says, Lord, teach me your ways. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. As we learn God's ways, God will show us what he, what he desires for us, and he will show us the way he desires for us to live. The second thing is learning the fear of the Lord. 
Psalm 34, verse 11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And what's amazing here is that you think about the fear of man. The fear of man, the Bible says, brings a snare. The fear of man brings destruction. But what does the fear of God bring? Well, Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. So as we develop a greater fear for God, a reverence for him, in return, we get wisdom. We get understanding. We get to know how to apply God's word in every single area of our lives in ways that is even surprising to us because we know it is God himself who has given us that wisdom to deal with that particular situation. And the third way that I think we can earn wisdom from God is by allowing God to teach us to number our days. As the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 12, it says the fear, sorry, Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. It was about maybe a month or two ago, I just happened to stumble upon an article that they were talking about how when people are dying, what are some of the things that they regret in life, right? And I don't remember all of the points, but some of the things were, you know, they should have reached out to people more, they should have kept in touch with their friends. But I bring this up because you realize that life, life is short and it requires a level of wisdom and, and, and a vision to understand that this life is fleeting, and God has saved us from the world. He has set us apart for himself. And so as he shows us how short life is, what that produces in us is an urgency to live life in a way that is going to be pleasing to him. We start to realize that these petty sins that we might dabble in here and there are not worth it because they're only going to bring grief to us, bring grief to God, destroy relationship with others. It's going to give us a level of wisdom and discretion that people don't have when they just think that, you know what, there's nothing coming after this life. Just live your life and do whatever you want, only to realize that they're wasting their life away. And uh, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, that's exactly what John Piper talks about, which is learning to live our lives in such a way that everything we do is literally pointing to the glory of God. So these three things, learning God's ways, learning the fear of the Lord, and allowing God to teach us to number our days, to recognize that we don't know how much time we have left. And unlike the unbelievers, unlike the world that take that phrase or that, that concept to just live in reverie, we take that concept to make the most of the time that God has given us and to make the most of the relationship that he has provided for us in his church, in his body, to make the most of every opportunity that he's given us to glorify him. And that brings wisdom in our lives. And then what do we do with this wisdom? Well, we teach and we admonish one another. And that's what we're going to talk about now. And I want this to be things that we can apply right away. So a lot of the things that we're going to talk about now are direct application of teaching 
and admonishing. But before we start, what is teaching? Teaching is to instruct, is to inform, or to communicate to somebody else the knowledge that he did not have before. Right? So you think about, I know we have some teachers in the classroom, right? Your job as a teacher is to instruct somebody on a new, new subject. Let's say it's math or reading or those who are raising children. They go from not knowing how to read and through your teaching and instruction, they learn how to read. Admonishment, on the other hand, is simply to, to warn or to notify of a fault. So you think about, on one hand, you are teaching. You are teaching new concepts, new knowledge, new uh, principles that they need to learn. On the other hand, you are admonishing, meaning you are taking what they're learning and warning them to apply it properly. So an example I can give is somebody's learning about trains, right? You're going to teach them how a train, what a train is, how fast they move, different types of trains that there are out there in the world. We have the bullet trains up in Asia. We have our um, antiquated trains here in America. And, um, and that's teaching. That's instruction. But the admonishment is never jump in front of a train. Because if you do that, it's not going to end well for you. So teaching and admonishment are somewhat two sides of the same coin. So we start with teaching. And the beautiful thing about being in God's body is that he uses people in our lives to teach us his ways and to teach his ways to others. And that's how the cycle continues, right? So you see in that passage there in Colossians, we take God's word, we apply it, and then we give it out. And that cycle continues just like that. And so teaching is a pattern of repetition and modeling. So we, we, we sometimes, as teachers, have to repeat something over and over again for somebody to understand it. But the fastest and the best way, and the teachers in the room can attest to this, that somebody learns, is when you actually model the concept for them. So if you're teaching somebody how to use a hammer, you may show them a PowerPoint slide of pictures of hammers and how to hold it, but until you take the hammer in your hand and you show them the motion that goes into applying that hammer to a nail and driving it into the wood, it, it's, the concept doesn't yet sink in. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because we cannot divorce teaching from the character that we have as believers. So if we are going to teach certain things, it has to behoove us that we are already applying those things in our lives so that we can teach and instruct verbally, but that we can also tell somebody, hey, just see how I do it. You want to learn how to do this? Just look at me, and I'll show you how it's done. Um, when I first started going out witnessing, that's how we used to do it. I would go out. I did not say a word. I would just look at how other people witnessed. Okay, that's what you say. That's what you have to do. Said, okay, now I know how to do it, right? So with that in mind, you might be asking, okay, what is it that we ought to teach? Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And we're going to spend some time there in Titus chapter 2. 
verses 1 to 10, because I think it sets for us immediate practical applications of things that we can start teaching each other right away. So in Titus chapter 2, the verse starts in chapter 1 of Titus 2. It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What do you think of when you hear the word sound doctrine? Before I did the study, I have to admit, sound doctrine in my mind were things such as eschatology, soteriology, things dealing with, you know, the end times and things like that. But then you read the example that Titus gives and what he's calling, I mean, the example that Paul gives to Titus, what Paul is calling sound doctrine It's almost like all of the mundane stuff that Christians tend to forget (laughs) that we tend to kind of put in a closet somewhere and focus on the high-minded intellectual concept of the Christian life or the Bible. Those are the things that he's calling sound doctrine. And what do those things look like? He starts off by saying to the older men, he said, older men, be sober. This is verse 2. Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And this is sound doctrine. So for the men, right, we have men here today. For the men, you want to know what to teach and what to apply and what to seek the Lord to grow in? This is the sound doctrine that Paul gives us here. To be sober-minded, to not absorb things that will corrupt our minds, and to keep our minds pure and sober before God, as Damien read today in Psalm 1, that we would meditate on God's Word, and that would be the thing that is going through our minds and not things that are going to corrupt it. He also talks about being sound in faith, being self-controlled, meaning having a pattern that is... A, uh, a soundness of life, a soundness of speech, letting our yes be yes, but letting our no be no. Somebody takes a vow to marry a woman, you got to keep, and you have to honor the, the woman that God has given you, and um, showing sincerity in all area of life. And um, these are the things that Paul is calling sound doctrine. And then for the women, he says, verse 3, older women likewise, he says, are to be reverent in behavior, not slenders or slaves to much wine, and they are to teach what is good. So we see the first part there, we see the character of the women, and then we see the things that they are to teach to the younger women. And those things include things such as being sober, to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. And so all of these things that we're seeing in this chapter are immediate practical applications that Paul has given us that we can teach one another and that we can model and seek to grow in and model for younger believers that are coming 
after us. And what's interesting in this chapter as well is that Paul connects the sound doctrine that we are to teach and that we are to develop in. He connects that directly to this idea that we do these things, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So not only are they good to maintain the relationship that God has given us within the church, but these are the very things that keeps us from being tempted by the enemy and also keep the word of God from being blasphemed by those who do not know him. He goes on to give examples of servants, exhorting them to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again. So there can be a whole sermon on just chapter two and just talking about the whole teaching concept. But I wanted to use this as an example for us because as I looked at it, and I said this before, it's easy to relegate these things to the back corner of our Christian walk, not realizing that these are the very sound doctrine that Paul is calling us to apply and is calling us to do and, and to teach uh, to one another. I remember when I first got married, my wife, she was part of Bloom Club, I think that's what they call it. And um, the whole idea was older women meeting younger women, coming in, those that had children coming in, and they would cook together, they would read scripture together. And the whole idea there was applying Titus 2, older women teaching the young women how to conduct themselves with their husbands, with their children, and in the home. And those things are all under that umbrella of teaching. I work in business, and one of the things that is very big when you hire somebody new is you have to show them the expectation of the job. You have to tell them what time they need to come to work, how to do the job, how they should interact with their colleagues. And I almost look at this as the drinking milk part of the Christian life. You just learn the basics, expectations of what it means to be a Christian. But at some point, there's a graduation that happens to eating meat. And this is where the admonition comes in. Just as in the business world, an employee comes in to work late, or they are not following the clear expectations that has been laid out for them in the beginning, they have to be admonished, they have to be corrected, they have to be pointed in the right direction. And there's only so often that somebody can be corrected um, before it becomes almost a burden. <laughs> and you can listen to the last message to see how to deal with that. But in any case, in the Christian life, God does not give us an option to not admonish one another. And he also calls us to be ones to receive admonishment. As I was looking into this, you know, um, one of the instances where the word admonishment is used in the scriptures is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. And this is what it says. It says, Ecclesiastes 4, 13, Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. 
Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. We have to admit, brethren, we live in a world where there are a lot of people who are old and foolish kings who will not be admonished. They do not want to be told what to do. They balk at any correction that they receive. But this should not be so in the house of God. So we have to admonish. And what is admonishment, as we said before, is to warn or to notify of a fault and to reprove and chastise. We see examples of this in the scriptures. For example, in Jeremiah 42, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to give you the synopsis. So this is where the, the, the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar went in, took the children of uh, Judah into captivity in Babylon. And then naturally, right, the people, the remnant that are still in, in, in Judah, they have fear in their hearts. And they want to escape because they're thinking, this guy is probably going to come back. We're still here. He's probably going to come back and finish us off. And so they want to go to Egypt. And they tell Jeremiah, hey, can you go ask God if we should go to Egypt or not? And of course, Jeremiah does this. And God comes back with an admonishment. God's come, God comes back with a warning. And he said to them, do not go to Egypt. Because God understood the motive for why they wanted to go to Egypt. He says, don't go to Egypt. Because if you go there, the sword that you are escaping in Judah is the sword that is going to go and track you down in Egypt, in this place that you think you're going to be safe. So God was telling them, stay here because here you are safe. If you go there, you are going to ruin your life. And this is essentially what we see when we are admonished, what God is saying, stay here. This is where you are going to be safe. When we balk at the admonishment, we're going to go there where we are going to be destroyed, where we are going to um, open ourselves off to a lot of attacks from the enemy. But why is admonishment so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to go to a brother or to a sister to say, hey, this is what I notice, and this is the warning that I see. And I'm calling you to escape the destruction that you are going down under. It's like somebody, like the proverb says, right? They take charcoal into their lap. Our job is to come in and move the charcoal off. But it's very difficult sometimes to do that. And that's because often people have two reactions when it comes to being admonished, when it comes to conflict. One option is to fight, and the other is to, fly, is to flee, or what we call the fight or flight response, right? Um, examples of somebody who fights when they, get, when they receive conflict could be assuming the motives of others in order to dismiss that person, cutting people off, not letting them talk, listening only to respond, but not to understand. On the other side, and I admit this is my propensity when somebody is admonishing me is to fall into the flight category. So you fall into silence, sarcasm, talking about everything else but the elephant in the room, thinking, going into self-pity. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm always being attacked. This is always me. You know, I'm always the one who is being chastised in this way. And 
we recognize in the body of God, both of these responses are wrong. Both of these responses are not productive to actually dealing with the conflict. So what is the best way to deal with the conflict? Well, we see the example laid out for us or the instruction laid out for us in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 7. You can turn there and we're going to spend the rest of our time here and then wrap up. But in Matthew 17, I'm going to read it and then we're going to walk through this passage step by step to look at a healthy way to handle conflict. Again, it's not an option for us. We have to deal with admonishment. We have to admonish each other. We have to receive admonishment. And Matthew 18 lays out a perfect example of how we are to do it. So it reads, Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother shall sin against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he will heal you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. So a few points here. The first thing we see that the goal of any type of rebuke is to win your brother over. Any type of admonishment, the goal is to win your brother over. So here, you really have to start with your own heart. In praying that the Lord expose your true motives about the conversation you want to have with the other person. And if you go into the conversation with any other motive than restoration, then already you're starting off on the wrong footing. Because as Christ is showing here, it says, if your brother hear you, you have gained your brother. So already the goal is, I want my brother to hear me. I want him to understand what I'm saying. I want him to receive what I'm saying. And I want him to reconcile and come back and not go down this path of destruction that he's going in. So that's the first thing, is to realize that the goal is to win your brother over. The second thing we see is that the conversation that you're going to have should first be between you and your brother alone. So underneath that, we see, do not let the problem fester too long, but also don't go gossip about it to 10 other people before you talk to your brother. Right? Or your sister. So the idea here, you go first to your brother alone before you tell the matter to others. Now, I understand, and, I, and I've been there, I get it, that sometimes I need to get counsel about how to approach somebody. And I believe it's a good thing if you need to get advice of how to approach somebody. But remembering that there needs to be discretion in seeking that advice that is not that is not that doesn't fall into gossip before you have had the opportunity to talk to your brother about the issue that needs to be addressed. So it's a it's a it's almost like a thin line there. Um, and again, that's the that's why we set the foundation of wisdom that comes from God 
to know, okay, I'm going to seek advice. I need to know how to deal with the situation, but I need to do it in a way that is not going to disparage my brother or my sister before I have had the opportunity to speak with them and try to win them over. And the reason I say that, too, is because if you think about what happens when gossip takes place is already the disposition of the heart is anger and it's easy for bitterness to creep in against your brother and against your sister when the first instance is to chatter and gossip about the person to somebody else without first having the opportunity to speak with them. So the first point is realizing that your goal is to win your brother over. The second point is to is to allow the first conversation to be between you and your brother alone. The third point is when rebuking to do it in love. And why do I say this? Is because, again, going back to the whole purpose of the admonishment and the rebuke is to win your brother over. So there has to be love there for your brother to win them over. So does the person that you're seeking to speak with on this matter, do they know that you love them and have the best and want the best for them in this situation. So there's an acronym that I'll give you called STATE, like State of New Jersey, um, that you can use, okay? So the S is, and this is in direct, okay, we, we set the foundation, right? You, you go there with the intent to win your brother over, you have the conversation with your brother alone first, and you do it in love. But then how do you, when you open your mouth, what do you say? What is, what is the, the process of that conversation? And this acronym STATE actually comes from a book um, that I read. It's called Crucial Conversations. It's not a, it wasn't written by a pastor, okay? It was written by a business person, so, um, you know. I don't recommend every single thing in there, <laughs> all right? But this was a good acronym that I think was useful, and it's something that was useful for me in, in, in applying even this passage today. But the S in state stands for sharing the facts, right? You, the facts as you see them. So your brother is in a particular situation. Example um, I can perhaps give is... Um, Somebody hasn't been in church for a very long time, right? And they could be forsaking the fellowship of the brethren, which is going against the word of God. Those are the facts. You haven't seen them in a while. You can speak with them and you share the facts. Hey, brother, I haven't seen you in a while. And this is the facts as you see them. The second thing is T, which is telling the assumption that you're beginning to make based on those facts, right? I don't know the motive. I don't know the, the, the heart condition of the person. So I cannot speak in a way that is um, assuming that I know uh, the person's motive and their heart behind it. I can only tell what I'm, what I'm, I can only tell the facts and what I'm beginning to conclude based on those facts. So, hey, brother, I haven't seen you in a while. Um, it seems to me that you are abandoning the fellowship of the brethren, which we know is against God's word. The A 
And so we have S, we have T, the A is to ask for the person starts, right? Um, and I know I'm using the example of somebody who hasn't been in church for a while. You can pretty much apply this in many different examples, but the whole idea is going into the conversation with the understanding that I want to win my brother over and I'm not going in thinking I know every side of the story. So you ask them for their thoughts, encourage them to talk and share their side of the story to understand what is going on. And the T is to talk with meekness or gentleness. And then the E is to encourage dialogue, allowing the person to talk because you want to find reconciliation. Now, after these things have been done, if you're still unable to find mutual ground, then at that point, it's time to escalate, to bring one or two witnesses, and then to bring in, eventually, the church. As the Word of God tells us, one person states his thoughts and thinks he's right until somebody else comes and examines him. So the job of the witness is to come, is to evaluate the situation, is to ask questions that maybe have not been asked before, and then to determine what the true facts are. As we close, one of the things I want to share and just reiterate is the Word of God does not give us an out. The Word of God does not make it an option for us to teach and admonish one another. And in the, word, in, in the, in the area of admonishment, we know that the goal is restoration. We also know that we have an enemy who is going to do everything that he can to thwart what God is trying to do in our lives. So we have to recognize that the fear that we feel, the, the apprehension that we feel to go and to confront certain situations is many times just the enemy putting lies in our minds, causing us to fear um, the situation or causing us to fear or, or to assume the worst about the outcome of the situation. And one thing that is very grieving, and we all, I'm sure, have seen it, is when you find in churches where instead of admonishing and instead of uh, seeking to win that brother over, the person essentially gives up. Bitterness creeps in, and then that's how churches start falling apart. That's how um, people move away uh, from the body because of a simple conversation that was never had. And I want to wrap up by giving you an example from Galatians where Paul does this beautifully. In Galatians 4 verses 10 to 16, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. If you know the book of Galatians, Paul is very strong rebuking the Galatians because they're seeking to leave the faith to go and observe the law. And Paul doesn't mince words when he tells them, if anyone comes before you with a gospel that we, that we have not shared with you, let that person be a curse. What Paul does, though, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 to 16, is a mixture of, them, of him rebuking the Galatians very sharply, but then mixing that rebuke 
and seasoning it and seasoning seasoning it with love. He says, for example, in chapter four, verse ten, he says, "You observe days and months and seasons and years." He says, "I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain." And then he goes on to say, "Brethren, I entreat you because as I am, for I also." Have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at the first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. So Paul is reminding them, you know my love for you. You know your love for me. When I came to you, you saw my sickness, and you did not push me away, but you received me. As a child of God, he even goes on to say, "I have a test. I testify of you that you would have even gouged out your own eyes and given them to me." So Paul is reminding these Galatians, "You know how much I love you. I know how much you love me. You would have given me your own eyes if you could, and I'm sure Paul would have given them his own eyes." If he could, because this is the same Paul who said he would have rather that he would be um, that he would perish if that meant that his brethren, the Jews, would be saved in Romans nine. So Paul reminds them of the love that he has for them and the love that they have for him. And then he asks in verse fifteen. Not verse 15. Uh, I don't think I have it here. But he asks in this passage here, he says, Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Right? And so this is a man who's seeking to win the Galatians over. He reminds them of his love for them. He reminds them of their love for him. And he's very strong about rebuking them. And he does this because he loves them. And, and, um, and so this is the same pattern that I think we ought to have in the body. That we can be strong in admonishing one another and rebuking one another, but do it in such a way that, we, that, that those that we are admonishing understand our love for them. And I believe we struggle because we either rebuke harshly with no love or we become timid and don't rebuke at all. The Lord does not give us either option. It's our responsibility to correct and rebuke, to teach, however uncomfortable. And let me wrap up and conclude by saying that at the end of the day, Jesus is our example. He proved his love for us by dying for our sins. He rebukes, he rebukes us, but he doesn't embarrass us. He chastises us because we are his children. And as we've said at the onset of this series, the gospel is what motivates us to do all of these things that we're saying here. And the gospel is what empowers us to do these things that we're saying here. So I hope that this study was encouraging. Um, I could have taken a lot more time, but I know we're short on time. But suffice to say, let us teach, let us admonish one another. Let us be involved in each other's lives. 
Let us allow the wisdom that we learn from God's word to be applied in how we correct and admonish one another. And let's all do this for the edification of the body of God. Amen.